0: to the podcast. My name is Todd Fraser. With me today is Sharon Milnes. Sharon is the Theme Coordinator for the Ethics, Law and Professional Development section of the School of Medicine program at Deakin University in Geelong, Victoria. Sharon is a medical ethicist and an ICU nurse and it's my great pleasure to welcome her to the podcast today. Welcome Sharon.
1: No problem. Good to be here.
0: For for a long time, the ethical basis for decision-making in ICU was very paternalistic, and that recently was replaced by sort of the four pillars of ethical decision-making, autonomy, beneficence, non-maleficence and social justice. Is that a framework that remains relevant in today's society?
1: Look, that, that framework was actually developed, you know, 40 or 50 years ago with um, Beecham and Childress's Books the, the, um, on bioethics, and there's a place for it, and it's a nice way to get doctors thinking about ethics, and that's why it was it was developed to begin with because we we had the age of paternalism where the sort of the beneficent medical practitioner made decisions for their patients that they thought were in the patient's medical best interest, and what both, um, Beecham and Childress tried to do was to say we need to take into account the the patient's perspective of this, hence the the notion of autonomy. Um, Beneficence is is kind of that idea of, of, you know, what what is in their best interest, I suppose, but what we've got to remember is the difference between medical best interest and what the patient actually considers is in their best interest. But the short answer to your question is, while there's a role for it to get people thinking about it, In the world of medical ethics, it's generally accepted that it's far too reductionist. Uh, The approach doesn't offer a satisfying analysis of the sorts of dilemmas that arise in medical ethics, and it doesn't take into consideration the context, which is what a lot of doctors really need. That's well and good, but what do I do now, here and now? And... the the sort of central issue for the doctor is the doctor-patient relationship and what's actually happening happening there at the bedside. And in ICU, it's the doctor-patient, the doctor and the patient's family, the patient and their family, the relationships within the family, and also things like, you know, the intensive care specialist and the specialist of of the admitting unit. And I don't think the principal approach helps to to sort of nut out all of those dilemmas within those relationships. So no, the the short answer is no, the the principal approach doesn't help us anymore. And there are new theories of ethics that are probably more applicable in the context of medical ethics
0: what sort of um or how would you replace those pillars in in uh, the ethical dilemmas that intensivists face
1: yeah look that's a trick and there's there's actually a, a lot of research going into this there's there's a new reasonably newish it was the the, the beginnings of it again developed around the 60s and 70s called an ethics of care so what we're thinking about with the principle approach is what's generally referred to as an ethic of justice or an ethic of of action, where uh, it's the fairness of what's happening is, is judged on the rightness or wrongness or the, the actions that people choose are judged as right or wrong. Now, what an ethic of caring looks at, first of all, it, it looks at the context of, of the actions that are occurring there and then. So an action may be judged as right or wrong in one context and differently in another context, whereas the more principle-based theories, uh, it's always right and it's always wrong. Um, The problem with the ethic of care... So the ethic of care looks at one's responsibilities and in, in particular relationships... And as, So let's take in the intensive care context. As I said, you've got relationships to your peers, to the, the other clinicians caring for that patient. You've got your responsibilities to the patient and your responsibilities to the patient's family. So if we consider those as sort of a web of relationships, where do your primary responsibilities lay? And if we take the end-of-life discussion, for instance, and we start making decisions about patient care that satisfy the relatives, really our primary responsibilities, and it's it's about proximity, if you like, are to the person who is closest to us in that web of relationship. The thing with medical ethics is that's well and good, but we I think doctors still need principles to sort of frame their decisions, they still need, yeah, principles I suppose is the best word, to to help them work through these issues ethically. It's interesting, you know, Todd, I'm uh, at the moment talking to all these people about my PhD and what it's going to be about is developing a framework of decision making for doctors to use for ethical deliberation based on an ethic of care. Because all the philosophers say they they just use these very uh, abstract terms, you know, and I think doctors need something prescriptive to help them, or or we've got to educate them not to be so prescriptive. I think, you know, in doing this, there's a big role for something like a um, clinical ethics uh, committee or a clinical ethics group that come and help people with these decisions.
0: I'm sure that would be a fantastic, uh, a fantastic <clears throat> invention in a hospital. Um, and I wonder whether you might be able to shed some light on some uh, common ethical issues for us. One that comes up reasonably commonly is the issue of constraints of resources and applicability or uh, appropriateness of use of those resources. Um, I think many clinicians feel that uh, it's the role of the intensivist to... Uh, have a responsibility for allocating resources widely and it raises the question who owns the health service and who has the right to make decisions about access to healthcare resources. What's the medical ethicist approach to that sort of problem?
1: Look, I think the medical ethicist approach um, brings in also the literature on the profession and uh, one of the things about a, a profession is that there are, there are there's give and take between society and a profession the society has allowed so they first of all the profession professors which is where the term profession comes from so they swear an oath that that they will um, altruistically to some degree uphold the health of of the people they interestingly enough a part of it is that they won't profit too much from it that that there is a degree of altruism in this um, and that they will maintain professional standards which also include ethical considerations, you know, those of confidentiality, um, best interests, consent, privacy, all of those issues. Respect is a big one and trust in the relationship. And what society gives back to the medical profession is first of all they allow them a monopoly of service, so we don't allow anybody else to go and cut out appendices, for instance. Um, we don't allow other people to shove tubes down people's throats and ventilate them. It's only people in this registered in this profession. Um, so society has said we will allow you the monopoly of this. The other thing they've done is they've also said we will allow you discretion in resource allocation. So. I believe, and if we go back to this model of relationships, there is responsibility and obligation both ways. So likewise, you know, we can look at the micro sort of aspect of the relationship. or If we go to proximity, you have a responsibility to the patient. The patient also has a responsibility back to the doctor to be honest in what they tell them, to care for their own health, so on and so forth. If we go to the wider aspect of the doctor and society, um, society has said to the doctor, we will give you responsibility for how the money is is distributed to to a degree. But in doing that, you've got to take care of our health and so forth. Um, But as far as the intensive care specialist goes, again, if we go back to that web, I think you still have to be caring for the patient then and there in the bed, and considerations of resource shouldn't be affecting your treatment decisions at the bedside.:
0: I think many clinicians would feel that that's um, a very theoretical um, analysis of the problem, and it may be, in the real world, it doesn't suffice, because there are obviously constraints on resources, and with an increasingly aging population being offered increasingly invasive therapies, there needs to be a limit. How is the clinician at the bedside to, to make these decisions?
1: Well, you can't be withdrawing on people just because you need to admit somebody else into that bed for a start. I don't believe that's ethically justifiable. You, you have to make the decision based on that patient for a start. As far as admitting someone into your bed, again, it comes down to that patient. Like The patient either deserves the bed or they don't. And I think those should be made on a case by case basis. Like I think I think it's a chicken and egg thing. I think the resource allocation problem is because our ICU bit are cluttered with people who should have been who should have had the end of life discussion well before ICU got involved. I think there's been a big swim swing from paternalism to abject autonomy. And I see it time and time again, where you hear particularly registrars, but occasionally consultants saying to families or patients, these are all our options, these are all the choices. Tell us what you would like us to do. Would you like us to withdraw? Would you like us to admit that patient to, to ICU? Do you think it's um,
0: a fear of having that sort of conversation?
1: Yes, and that's why I was talking about, bravery. I think it is. I think, I think, it's, too, I think it's an inability First of all, I don't think... And Margaret Himes, who's a palliative care specialist at Northern, has done a... a, Her PhD was on uh, not-for-resuscitation discussions. And a big thing in that was trust. The biggest thing that came out of that for both uh, patients and doctors was the way it affected the trust in the therapeutic relationship. And the patient said it wouldn't affect the trust if it was done well. If you said it to me the way you've just said it, no, of course. So I'd be happy to have the conversation. But the, anyway, what the junior doctors said in that was that no one has ever told them how to do it, how to have this conversation.
0: You mentioned that that process of, um, of discussing end-of-life uh, or limitations of care or um, process of care for these patients. Uh, and... The, what, is, what has been the role of advanced care planning in, in this process?
1: You know, historically, people had more choice over their death. People chose where to die. People chose um, chose how they'd die, all those sorts of things. But we've medicalised death, much like we've medicalised birth, really. Um, and we've now taken that choice off people, and we do as much as we can to interfere with the dying process. And I think there's been a sort of misnomer in, in medicine, in sort of postmodern medicine, if you like, that the job is to cure and only cure, that we can't cure everything. And um, advanced care planning makes patients think about what's important, what they want to live for, uh, what they don't want to live for, how they don't and do want to live. And very importantly, letting the patient's families or their surrogate decision makers know that that's how they feel. Because oftentimes, you know, we hear time and time again in ICU, mum would hate being like this. She'd hate it. But I just can't stand to have her die. So, yep, let's, let's have another exploratory abdominal surgery. Or, you know, yep, let's keep going on. Let's introduce a new antibiotic. Now, If mum would hate being like this, we should have some way of of absolutely knowing this. And this comes back to the bravery of the intensive care specialist saying, hang on, let's go back. If your mum would hate being like this, first of all, I'm caring for your mum and not your... You know, you don't say it in this way, but you are caring for the, the mother, for the lady in the bed, not the daughter or the son's inability to cope if they die. And... It's, it, you do have a responsibility to help the family deal with that, but advanced care planning helps everybody to sort of say, okay, I've got it written here, or I know I had this conversation with Mum. She said she never wanted to to live if she had to go into a nursing home or whatever. So it's it sort of it assists in that decision. If we're just looking ethically, I think that's the beauty of advanced care planning is it tells us what the patient would have wanted in this situation when they were unable to, to tell us themselves.
0: Some of those forms, the advanced care planning forms, have been criticised for being relatively non-specific and, and not contributing to decision-making in that admission or non-admission phase. Do you have a comment on that?
1: Yeah, look, I I think again, um, medicine's desire for these reductionist uh, lists or, or you know instructions can't be applied at the cold face when you're dealing with people when you're dealing with very vulnerable people. I would hate to see them more prescriptive. I think, and I I understand what they're saying, and I recognise that they can be quite verbose and not prescriptive for exact decision making but nor should they be I don't think I think these decisions are far too complex for you to get a list and say oh they did want resuscitation so let's do it um oh they, they didn't want to ventilate to be ventilated so let's do that let's let's not ventilate because it depends on the situation doesn't it you know if it's I looked after a man who VF arrested literally at the steps of the hospital and was... He he actually... He was one of those people. He had a big scar down his chest. He'd obviously had cags in the past. His wife was saying he never wants to be in ICU again. He never wants to be there again. He was defibrillated then and there. He had less than 24 hours in ICU and walked out of the hospital. Had he had an advance care plan that said, I do not want to be resuscitated ever... um, and was that prescriptive, and we should have stuck to it, he, he wouldn't have been resuscitated. But in, in the context, in, in that situation, it was the right decision to make. So I think you've got to be careful making them too specific. And too prescriptive.
0: So like many things, it's a tool and the tool needs to be used yep. the right way. And it sounds like that's the right. the benefit may be in actually getting people to talk about the issues in advance rather than the actual result that's documented.
1: That's right. It's very much like, you know, the whole idea behind organ donation. Tell your family, tell everyone around you. So when the, the time comes, people feel better about the decisions that are made.
0: I know there's been some recent efforts to increase the rate of organ donation in various parts Mm -hmm. of the world. And one of those is to encourage the admission of patients who may or may not progress to brain death to the intensive Mm -hmm. care unit when it's clearly futile uh, in terms of their own outcome. And I'm just wondering Mm -hmm. what your perspective is on whether organ donation is in the patient's best interests.
1: Is organ donation in the patient's best interest? It depends on their preferences before they died. If they, if they truly believed that they could help somebody else by being an organ donor, and their preference, their their preference for their future should this happen, be that they would be an organ donor, then um, I guess, in a very broad sense of best interest, it is served. Um, Are they? Is admission to ICU helpful for them? No. No, it's not. Um, So, again, I think, and and this comes down to, again, if we think about that sort of web of, of relationships or that proximity framework for thinking about things, I think really at that stage, it's also the family that you're caring for in this situation. And what you've got to be careful of if you are going to admit them to ICU, because they may potentially progress to brain death and be, be a, an organ donor um, is that the family need to be very clear on that that is the reason they're being admitted to ICU uh, not that they're being admitted to ICU for any sort of curative care.
0: I guess that's the concern isn't it is that if you um, take that web model of um, ethics and your um, proximity to the patient, admitting... Mm. Uh, I think many clinicians would have some concerns that they're not acting in the patient's best interests by allowing yeah. them to remain alive in a horrible state um, yeah. just yeah. to see whether yeah. they can go on, on to organ donation.
1: Yeah, absolutely, and I agree with that. And I'm sure I'm going to have Donate Australia or whatever they're called now, Breed... Mm. <laughs> Bring me up, but I absolutely agree with that. We we still have to have respect for people even after they they have died. The other thing is, if we kind of take a utilitarian viewpoint of this, which is usually the you know that that sort of um, uh, what is for the greater good and that that sum of of benefits and burdens to society as a whole, and people say you know it's it's better for society as such, or or the the, um, greater good is is better served if we do uh, have this person admitted to ICU and um, potentially be an organ donor. But the greater good isn't served if the public don't trust that we as a medical profession aren't going to care respectfully for us at this point in our life. So if we treat people as potential organ donors rather than... A person in a bed who is very, very, very unwell you know, um, and is going to die a horrible death and we can help them to die a nice and more dignified death by not admitting them to ICU, I think if, if we're not going to do that, the trust between the medical profession and society will be adversely affected in a dreadful way and the greater good won't be served to them. So I think to maintain that trust between medicine and society in general, we need to to assure them that we will care for people with respect and respect for their preferences right to the very end.
0: That issue of trust between a patient and their family and the clinician Mm -hmm. has, uh, has been concerning for me, particularly in the context of discussing organ donation prior to a patient being formally declared as brain dead, in mm. that you may give the family the impression that your interest lies with the organ donation process rather than the care of the patient.
1: Yeah, mm. yeah, yep. I understand exactly what you're saying and I think that's a very reasonable point to make. Um, in this study that we did, we questioned families who'd consented. This was brain death, as I said, families who'd consented Uh, Families who had refused and clinicians involved in these decisions are our intensive care specialists. And um, the families who had consented actually were expecting the question and were relieved to be asked the question and have an opportunity to discuss it. Similarly, the families who had refused... uh, it, they didn't expect it, but they were quite clear on the fact that they were going to refuse and um, didn't want to be pushed on it anymore. It comes down to just letting the family know exactly what your um, motivations are, I guess, that, you know, you will care for this person. All people people want to know that you care for their relative. I think that's, that's the issue and how it's how it's said now that's all very easy to say here on the phone and theoretically but um, that's what came out in the research they just really wanted to know that their family member was going to be cared for and if they refused they wanted that decision respected as well
0: Sharon the ICU is clearly an ethical hotbed and uh, these issues Mm. uh, come up on a daily basis so thank you very much for your time in helping us to understand the ethical principles in a bit more detail Thank you, Todd. Not at all. Thank you very much, Sharon.
1: Okay. Bye.
0: If you enjoyed this podcast, why not visit our website? Critique is a leading provider of online critical care education. Multimodal resources such as podcasts, interactive modules, The Journal Club, an interactive echo module, much, much more available. Why not visit us today? www.crit-iq.com.au